This is the Real Rebel Podcast, and you're listening to the Rebel Chats Edition. This is for the people who push the boundaries of our society, for the people who live on the fringe, for the people who aren't afraid to question the status quo and live life as exactly who they are, not as who they should be. These are the people who make us uncomfortable, who speak truth and break glass ceilings, who aren't afraid to stand up and face themselves, who refuse to be oppressed and help us expand and evolve the edges of humanity. These are the real rebels, and this podcast is for them. Hey, it's your host, Katie B, and thanks so much for tuning into this guest episode of the Real Rebel Podcast. And I fully acknowledge and realize that I do say this with all of my guests, but that is because it is always true. I am very excited to introduce this next guest to you. So today we have on Isaac Johnston, and Isaac is a photographer, director, producer, and adventurer, and he has essentially spent his life creating stories and weaving in his enthusiasm. And through this creative work of his, he has worked for Land Rover, Canon, NBC Universal, BMW, and many more. If you want to check out Isaac, you can find him on Instagram at ISAAC Johnston. And there you'll be able to take a look at his stunningly gorgeous photography. And the reason why I was so drawn to Isaac is because he is really, in essence, living a life that so many of us dream of, a life of freedom, a life of adventure, of excitement and beauty. And especially now, as we all find ourselves in our homes and we've slowed down a bit, if you're listening to this when it's released, we're all kind of looking at our lives and really taking stock of what we want to keep with us and what we want to leave behind as we enter this new world, which I feel makes it especially important to listen to stories like Isaac's, because Isaac wasn't always a photographer who was getting paid to travel the world and take photographs of some of the most incredible photographers he started out on a farm with a big family and there wasn't enough money to go around really. And what he did was take uncomfortable leap after uncomfortable leap and really just follow um, what felt true to him, his core value, which was and is to help people have adventure. And so as you will hear, he does an incredible job of telling stories. So settle in. And with that, I am going to take us right on into this incredible conversation with this wonderful human, Isaac Johnston. So, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And before we get started, I have to ask, how are you doing in this quarantine situation? Because you are a world traveler and there must be some kind of challenge in that for you. Yeah, so I'm known as a travel adventure photographer, but the the dirty little secret is that um, the American West is where I'd prefer to travel 95% of the time. Ah, so that works out. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) also where I live, there's a lot of things that I'm still curious to do seasonally all the time. So it's spring, it was was winter, it's, it's now spring, there's still all sorts of things that I want to do. And then combined with the fact that I mostly work from home, 
and my wife homeschools our, our girls so that we can be mobile and travel and stuff. Not a lot has actually changed on my day-to-day life. So very lucky, extremely lucky. And then it's just, it's mostly the same. Um, yeah. You know, there's been a work slow, which is, I think happened with everybody, but I actually still do have jobs going on. It's kind of just shifted all of my efforts from keeping up with client work to like, whenever I have time now, I'm fully in like deep work, like redoing portfolios or going through all of my work. Like I, I've just, um, there's been a huge demand for stock photography right now, which predicates me going back through all of my work that I've done over the last five years and looking at all of it, which has been just a huge journey and stuff that I could never do if I was, you know, keeping up with the day to day and there wasn't actually a push and a demand for it. So I guess there's been a shift, but for me, it's not as painful as it has been. I think for most people, I've been really lucky. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I've work I've been working from home for the past like four or five years. And so it's just feels like life is going on as usual. But I find the same. I'm able to do the things that I've known have always needed to be done, like the background stuff that you know takes a lot of time. And you're if you're going about your daily life, you don't necessarily have the time to do it. And it's yeah. so nourishing. And I'm just curious, why do you think there's a higher demand for stock photography now? So from what I'm hearing from my agent is that there are different grades of shoots. So there's like the adventure travel photographer who does solo work and they do social promotion and maybe a couple of stills delivery or maybe some video that the client will then use on their social or website. But then there's like these mid-level shoots that have a producer and maybe the creative director from the company comes out and they shoot with a couple models. And then there's a huge like once a year shoots that are, you know, 10 models you know, 15 crew or even more, you know, I've been on video shoots where there's been over a hundred crew. Wow. So those, everything that is not just solo production now has been canceled, but that doesn't mean Mm. that companies aren't marketing. You don't have a need for marketing material. Right. So they're trying to get creative and figure out ways to continue to have marketing material. So they're just saying, Hey, do you have anything that fits this? Do you have anything that fits this? And they're what they would normally just go out and shoot because of ease of use and timeline. They're asking all these photographers all over the world to like, meet these specific demands. Right. Um, they're looking for stuff that's already been created so they can reduce their liability of having these, well, these shoots they can't even do, but also there's like, um, you know, a moral liability to not do even the smaller shoots, even if people are hungry to do those. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's the reason why that's what I've been told. Um, I've never considered myself much of a stock photography guy. I don't know why I just haven't. And so it's kind of a unique and fun thing for me <laughs> rather than a pain <laughs> in the butt. I'm like, wow, this is great. <laughs> well, everyone, I think that this is forcing people to try different things and like businesses to do different things as well. And everyone's having to think outside the box, which I mean, that's how you live your life is like totally outside the box. And I love on on your website, I'm, I'm just going to quote this because I had to, I wrote down the whole thing because I thought it was so cool. <laughs> you said, heritage, a dash of irreverence and a strong desire to live a life that is as contagious as it is authentic. That's where it all started for me. And that's where that's where it's all headed. Um, so when I like was stalking you essentially online, um, <laughs> I <laughs> what, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it came it like for me, what I really noticed the most is like, oh, he's like freedom is a huge thing. Adventure is a huge thing. Creativity, storytelling. Um, and you have a family and like you're, you're embodying what so many people uh, hope for themselves for their lives. And 
I would love to know like where it all began. Maybe first, if you would describe in your own words what it is you exactly do, because it changes often, I'm sure. Yeah. And then if like where it all began, starting from like when you first kind of felt the call or like the beginnings of of the role that adventure and freedom played in your life, the beginnings of all of that. Yeah. Well, that's a big set of questions. <laughs> um, I think, okay, so for me, where it all started, I guess, is um, it's kind of just the way that I'm built. You know, there was a little bit of nature versus nurture, but going back and, and I guess before we jump fully into this, you know, what I do and like kind of, uh, I guess what you could call me would be uh, the, the real constants are adventure and storytelling. Mm. And I try and make it as attainable as possible. So I'm not, um, even if I do climb Everest someday, it's not going to be like your typical, like, this is epic. Look how epic this is. It's more about sharing the real experience and the excitement that I feel. Mm. And what I've found is that the things that really that I feel valuable are valuable in my life and that I want to share is I want to share the excitement that I feel and I love and feel like I'm at my best when I can basically get other people excited about what I'm excited about. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, but um, I feel that when people are excited, they're the best versions of themselves and who doesn't want to be around somebody who's the best version of themselves. So it's kind of selfish a little bit, but when I'm excited and I can impart that to other people, they get excited. And then I just love being around that. That's yeah. the culture and the experience that I want to be around. It doesn't matter if you're 65 years old and have never gone outside, or if you're, you know, Renan Ozturk, like this legendary big mountain filmmaker, if I can get him excited and I can be around him, it's the same feeling for me. Yeah. And I have hung out with Renan Ozturk and, and done things like we went, um, him and a bunch of other guys, we went uh, lime scootering around um, Santiago, Chile. And like, he'd never done that. And I'd never done that. What's lime scootering? Uh, it's like a bird bird scooter. Have you heard of no. that? It's like those electric scooters that they have in like bigger cities. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you get like the app and you go around. Anyway, so I went and did that with him and a bunch of other great creators. Um, one of the best rock climbers in the world. And like, I was in a project with these guys, which is totally crazy to me because I'm not that level of adventure, not even close. But I was on the project and my goal, like, I'm not going to go out climbing with these guys and have them be excited <laughs> about climbing with me. But if we can go do something we've never done together, <laughs> I convinced them like, hey, let's all get, let's get these lime scooters and just go like totally rally them around Santiago and just get in trouble. And we all like ran around like kids. And that right there, that was an, an epic adventure with these guys because it was just different. And we we're all excited and we're yeah. all acting like hooligans. Um, but maybe it's something different with, you know, somebody who's, 65 years old, you know, like with my dad, um, I always love going on hikes with him or um, getting him on some of my brother's horses and going and doing that. So that's kind of the basis of what I what I am and what I do. I'm always trying to impart excitement. And the best way that I found to do that is through stories. And it just so happens that I have a knack for telling stories through photos. And I have a little bit of a knack doing that through video. I like doing podcasts. I also love writing. So for me, I'm kind of media agnostic. So I'm an adventure uh, photographer, but I'm also just an adventure storyteller with an emphasis on attainability. Like I just want everybody, I don't care what the adventure is. I just want it to be the adventure. I love that because I think that when you 
sometimes we look at these people who are doing these really big things like the, you know, world-class climber or it it doesn't even matter what the thing is. We can look at it and then there's this like, oh, I'll never be able to get there. Why would I even bother? I, I, I can't go out and do that thing because it's not for me because I'm not at that level. And then we just shut it off. We cut it off at the knees. Yeah. And then we're depriving ourselves of um, this wonderful situation or or the common denominator, which is, you know, what you say is excitement. We're depriving ourselves of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think um, you know, everybody gets excited by different things and yeah. everybody has their different level of adventures. It's more about the excitement. Something that I feel most adults have a, a definitely um, a lack of excitement in their lives. And it's because they kind of just are like, well, I've got to do this. And I've got to save up this money, much money to go on this big vacation. It's totally not that. Yeah. It feels very similar to when you're like, you know, in high school or, you know, grade school and you look at somebody who's like more attractive than you, at least you think that, or, you know, has more skills or has more money than you. And you're like, I'll never be that. And you just feel icky and you don't want to be around that person. I don't want to share that kind of content. I don't want to share those kind of adventures. I want to share stuff that people go, that's awesome. I'd love to hang out with that guy. And I, I'm actually going to go out and grab my canoe right now and go do something stupid in it because that seems exciting. It inspired me. I want to be like a little bit of inspiring, not like lifetime inspiring. Right. Little bits, breadcrumbs for people to just kind of start moving out into doing what they can with what they have. In fact, that's kind of what I'm focusing on this year is, you know, I've I've been buying a lot of really cheap pieces of adventure gear, $200 split snowboard, which they normally cost almost $2,000 a $100 motorcycle, which is unheard of. Um, and going out and those things, they pretty much suck to use. But the goal is just <laughs> to get outside and do what you can with what you have because excitement is excitement, you know? Yeah. It's just, there's different grades of it. So that's another little aside there. But I guess going back to how this started for me, if I'm not jumping too far before you inject no, I, here. No, like this... This is how it always happens. These conversations go wherever the heck they want to, and we're just along okay. for the ride. So yeah, it's all good. Cool. Well, so I think when you say where this all started for me, I have um, right now I have two daughters, um, a six and an eight-year-old. And my six-year-old, my wife tells me she's exactly like me. I don't, I, I see things in her that I really appreciate, and I'm not able to like say those are from me. Um, Because I I don't see it. Maybe I'm not self-aware enough to see that. But she is incredibly driven as far as just doing things that she wants to do. So she'll just get like it in her head that she's going to go build something and she'll just do it. She won't ask anybody. She's six years old. She'll just go make it happen. And oftentimes she'll get in trouble. Yeah. Or she'll like make a huge mess or (laughs) she'll get hurt or something like that. And I love it. I love watching it. Um, But she's not rude about it. She's just very polite about it. She just goes and does her own thing. Yeah. And I've been told by my parents that I was the same way when I was young, that I just would get these ideas and I just go do them. And so that's kind of, I think, the way that I was wired. But then the way I grew up, there were six kids in my family. I was the middle. I was number four or no, sorry, number five, not number four. Three girls, three boys. Uh, It was my older brother, then three girls, then me, then my younger brother. And we all lived on a farm. Yeah, that's huge. I come from, there's, there's, I have, there's four of us kids in our family. And, you know, that's, I thought that was big, but six. Oof. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's huge. Six kids is huge for nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. So there was a lot of ruckus on our, on our farm. We grew up, in fact, my parents literally just sold the farm yesterday. Wow. Oh, yeah, they've been there for 34 years. Wow. 
That yeah, must feel time. weird. Hey, like that's that must feel. You know, I haven't. I don't. There's. I think because of coronavirus, like I'm not really able to help them move. We weren't really ever to have like a closing kind of like closing ceremonies. Yeah, yeah. We weren't able to have that. We'll have it later, but not in place. You know, so it it hasn't really hit me yet. And I think for the last five years, I've been trying to get my parents to sell the place anyway because they're getting older and it takes a lot of work. So I've kind of like gradually been letting it go. And then because we can't really have like the moment at the end, it hasn't hit me yet. But it, growing up, it was a great place to be. It was five acres, but surrounded by 2,000 acres of, of another farmer's farm field. So it just wow. felt like it was in the middle of nowhere. And in in where I lived back then, there was 50,000 people in the whole surrounding valley. So it wasn't very big back then. So it did feel like the middle of nowhere. But it kind of felt like freedom. But I also grew up extremely um, poor. Like we just didn't, I mean, <laughs> I just, as I'm like looking at photos that my mom is finding that she's moving out, um, one of the photos that got sent around is of our barn with like 20 to 30 ducks and somebody sitting out there and like ragamuffin clothes. And I was like, holy cow, we really were poor. I mean, it looks like a scene out of like 1930s <laughs> Like, it's really that's kind of what's popping up in my mind right yeah. now. <laughs> you're, you're definitely imagining the right thing. Um, but I didn't really know that because for us, it was just everything was doable. But through that, my parents, they also were kind of a little bit alternative thinking. I started being homeschooled when I was in second grade all the way through high school. They weren't homeschoolers per se. Like I never hung out with other homeschoolers ever. It right. wasn't my vibe, but they just kind of always had like a, we're more worried about the the outcome than what people think of us. Oh, I love that. What an awesome environment. Yeah. So then they always said, you can do whatever you want to do. Like we don't, you know, we don't care if you go to college or whatever, you just set your mind to it and you can do whatever you want to do. So it was very empowering. It didn't have much direction though. So the opposite, the kind of the you know, there's always an equal and opposite reaction. The opposite yeah. was that I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, I didn't have any strong direction. There was nobody saying like, hey, you seem good at this. Go for that. My parents always told me like, you're really smart. You can't just do manual labor with your life. You're going to be unsatisfied with that. You need to do something with your mind. Um, so I always had that. But to be honest, when it, when I came to college age, I had no idea how to get into college. Like I'd never, my parents had never talked about it. They clearly, they couldn't pay for it. And I kind of have to just navigate that myself. And I went and did the you know, the SATs and all of that kind of by my own accord. And I did well, but what I came down to is like, I just didn't want to go $50,000, $60,000 of debt to figure out what I wanted to do because I hadn't figured it out, you know? Yeah. And like, not only, most people haven't figured it out, but at least they're being pushed in a direction. I, there was no push in a direction. So I guess for me, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I went and I was in a band for four years, which was mildly successful, um, signed to a record label, but then what they call shelved. Basically, there was, three bands that got signed at the same time and they took one. What and was then, the band? Uh, it was called three minutes from home. Okay. Yeah, it was cool. kind of like a Jimmy world vibe. What it really came down to is that I just, me personally, I was not good enough. I was the bass player and backup vocalist <laughs> and I was mediocre at both. Um, oh, no. So it was never going to go anywhere, but it was a yeah. great time. I did that over college age. Um, I then met and married my wife and then just spent my twenties. Um, one characteristic of me is I'm very impatient with not doing what I want to be doing with my life. Yeah. Um, so some people are very patient. Like they, they get a job and they're like, oh, I'll figure it out, you know? And they, and they, I love that. I think that's a, that's an admirable quality. Like they're willing to just put in time and just let things sort themselves out. Um, I have no inability to do that. In fact, my wife will tell you that when we got married, the first six months of our marriage was like all of the fights. 
It was like <laughs> you were like, let's horrible. get through this now. <laughs> I just wasn't gonna let any weirdness like be there. Yeah. It wasn't that I wasn't gonna let it. I think that's healthy. Oh maybe. I think it was a little bit overkill for me. But luckily she loves me enough and um was patient enough to explain, like, no, that's not the way it's gonna be. Mm. So but I can tell you that like since that first six months, it's we've had like smooth sailing. <laughs> there's, there's never been anything serious, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of how my brain works. It's like, if there's something, I just like kind of obsess about it a little bit. So that was my twenties was just figuring out like, what do I want to do with my life? I tried everything. I had like so many jobs. You would have thought I was like some loser that couldn't keep a job, but I really just wasn't interested in keeping a job. I wasn't interested in the wrong thing. Yeah. And I want to pause there for a sec because I think that's the story for so many people. I had a similar story too, where I I did so many different jobs and to to my family and to the outside, it was like, well, she can't hold a job. And I think so many people, there's such a a stigma, a negative stigma around that where it's like, oh, but it's also, it's, it's a process of discovery. And if you're not into it, why would you not cut it off like in the beginning? And then you yeah, that's what they're for. I feel like that's like the time where you should be able to just completely try everything, go for three months. I mean, I was like, I sold motorcycles at a dealership. I, I worked construction. I, I uh, had a window cleaning company for a while. I got my properties management license and I was a residential property manager. So I, I tried a lot of things. And actually, I was a, a project manager for a construction company that remodeled every Ross dress for less store in the United States. Um, so like, I literally did a ton of things. Yeah. And, you know, didn't know what I wanted to do, had no real leadership skills or anything like that. And I think it was right when our first daughter was born, I think I was 27 or 28. I'd been doing this um, project management, traveling project management for these Ross Dress for Lesses, and it paid really well. And But it was traveling. We had our first daughter and I just, I quit that. I was like, well, I'm not going to travel anymore. And I had saved up some money. So for like three, four months, I just helped my wife take care of our new daughter, but I didn't just sit there. You know, at this point I was reading a lot of books, had gotten back into reading a lot of books. And I went and I got this book called uh, 48 Days to the Work You Love by Dan Miller. Have you heard of that book? No, I haven't, but it's going on the list. Okay. Well, it's, I don't, I mean, it's been, it's been eight years since I've read it. So it might be totally not, it might have, it might have, uh, its shelf life might have expired. But Mm. at the time it was kind of, for somebody who was thrashing, what it did is it, it took all of that thrashing. And instead of me just kind of going by feel, it helped me intentionally figure out like the crossroads of my, uh, what are they? I've, this is, people have said it all the time. And I spent so long since I've read this that I don't exactly know what the terminology is, but it was like my passion, the things I'd always been drawn to and the things that, you know, the marketplace needed. And it really helped you drill down kind of your why. But it took 48 days. Like it literally has you do it every day for 48 days. You write and you, it's like a full on workbook. And because I had so much time and I had, you know, like figured out, like, I need to, I need to figure this out. If I don't figure this out, I'm just going to get some other job that I hate and waste more time and not be good at it. And therefore never like actually make the income that I want to make. Well, it's, it's kind of like when an airplane, it's that saying, like if the nose is seven feet off to like the, the opposite direction, the trajectory of it is somewhere completely different. So you got to make sure your, your plane or your ship or whatever is pointed in the right direction before right. you set sail. Yeah. You know what I think? Because to use that analogy, like the nose of my plane was pointed the wrong direction and then it would sweep past the right direction and then it would go the other way. <laughs> but I was like zigzagging to my destination. 
for yeah. sure. I mean, like not even, you know, I think life is a nice meandering river, but I was like cutting the river from bank to bank over and over again. <laughs> like I was not only meandering as a river, I was meandering from bank to bank. I mean, yeah. I just didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was meandering hard because I just was checking out every opportunity and, um, you know, whether it was boredom or whatever. Also like, um, so I'll get back to the 48 days of the work you love, but something I found out about myself is that people's perception of me is that I'm an extremely focused and hard worker. And my experience is that I'm an extremely unfocused, lazy person. <laughs> and what I found out <laughs> is where the discrepancy is, is that if I like to do it and I want to do it, nothing will stop me from doing it. Mm-hmm. When I don't want to do it and I don't like doing it, almost nothing can get me to do it. Not myself <laughs> specifically. I'm I know extremely that well. lazy with things I don't want to do. Yeah, yeah. like extreme. And so like knowing that about myself now has really helped. But so at the time I was trying to figure out what was going to, you can't be lazy and like end up running your own company. You You just can't, you can't be lazy and be the CEO of something. You just can't. I mean, you can be, you could feel lazy sometimes, but you can't like, that can be your overwhelming characteristics. So I was figuring out a way. And I certainly, nobody even at that time would have called me lazy, but I was feeling like I, I couldn't quite put in the, the long-term focus that was needed. I couldn't marathon on anything. It was always a sprint. And then I was like, I'm over this. You know, I'm tired and I'm, this is not fun anymore. So with this 48 Days to Work You Love, what I found out through writing this is that what I needed was to help people have an adventure. Like that was the phrase that came out of it. And I should have taken it even further and I have since. But at the time it was like, basically helped you figure out like what the ingredients are to your life mm. that you need to have going forward. I, I liken it to like a spaghetti colander is that you're just going to pour all the opportunities that come from life into the spaghetti colander. And what's going to stick for me was things that helped people have an adventure. And that could be a stretch. You know, it could be everything from, you know, being a, a travel agent to um, being like an actual on the ground hunting guide or something like that, which actually I grew up working for an outfitter anyway. So that's kind of I've jumped over that part, but I started working for an outfitter as like just a farm help at 11 years old. And by the time I was 13, I was driving stock trucks loaded with 18 horses into the Bob Marshall wilderness and then hiking 14 miles back to camp. Oof. Yeah. By the way, in Montana, you don't get your license when you're 13. (laughs) Okay. I was going to say that's a rather young age. (laughs) Like I was driving a farm truck at that age, but I definitely wasn't insured. (laughs) No, I was driving it like 80 miles, 80 miles back into the Bob Marshall. With like a ton of horses in the trailer. The guy was like, uh, you know, he ended up being still is a close family friend and he just trusted me and my, my, so I was 13. My younger brother was driving an F-150 with all the gear that goes on the horses at 12 he was following me up there wow holy (laughs) smokes yeah so i didn't at the time i was already driving all i was driving back and forth to work i had my own car that i got from that guy for work like he just gave us a car instead of paying us um so yeah it seems very unconventional now (laughs) i would never let my kids do that um but at the time yeah if you think about a 13 year old driving like it's just mind-blowing it's nuts so that kind of set the independent spirit and i think also really shaped me needing adventure. Like once you get that thrill, <laughs> you're never the same, you know? So mm. I worked from him off and on from uh, 11 years old all the way till I was 22. Wow. Off and on. And, you know, by the time I was 17, I was actually guiding people back in the Great Bear Wilderness. I worked 
in the outfitters camp for seven years, for seven seasons, you don't work there all the time. And in that seven seasons, it was so remote that we only saw one person that wasn't from our party ever. Holy smokes. Wow. Yeah. It's like, not, it's so remote and like Glacier Park and like all these really pretty places that are just slightly prettier than they are. So yeah. nobody ever comes into this area because it's like slightly less pretty and way harder to get to. Right. Which is kind of nice. Yeah. And I, and again, I guess, um, and I'm jumping all over the place here, but this guy was, um, he became a wonderful family friend. He had kids that were our age and he basically worked in the fall for hunting. And then he would do farm work other times of the year. But in the summer, as a kind of a thank you to us, and because we were friends with his kids, he would take us on two raft trips, each one being a week long somewhere around the American West for like, as a, as a thank you. So uh, I floated the South Fork, the Flathead, the Smith River in Montana, the Green River in Utah. And so like, these are things that take an extraordinary amount of planning and even resources and you have to have knowledge and to have that knowledge, you've got to have money to be able to buy a raft and do all that stuff. And I, as a kid, I was just getting invited on these things, like these massive once in a lifetime adventures. I was doing two a summer for like, you know, 10 years. So Mm. I had no idea how normal adults lived. I didn't know that normal adults didn't go on these epic adventures all the time. Mm -hmm. So it kind of ruined me. And I think that's why I thrashed so hard in my twenties is like, I didn't want a 40 hour a week job where I didn't have fun. And I had such a great childhood. I mean, it was just free reign adventure until I was basically like 2021 of just like doing these epic once in a lifetime adventures. And I couldn't, when I got in my twenties, you know, that pipe was shut out. I stopped working for that guy. I was, you know, I had my wife and I were trying to like, you know, figure out what we were going to do. We couldn't just work, you know, part-time for this guy and be broke and then go on fun adventures. And like his life was changing too. His kids were going off to college. And so that kind of opportunity faded. And I spent my twenties, like just doing micro adventures, but like being like, what, this is all there is. You mean I don't have as like, I can't just go like do these epic, like two to three weeks of adventures in the summer and like do whatever I want. Um, it was hard. Yeah. Like I just was kind of dissatisfied with it. So moving into my late twenties, I figure out that whatever I'm going to do, I have to run it through the colander and it has to have some sort of adventure in it. And I knew that, but I, I didn't have any opportunities. Montana is a wonderful place to live. Populated now in my area, mostly by people who lived somewhere else, made their money and came here because they want the adventure. <laughs> or they could make you know three times as much as they've lived in a big city, but they live here and work for pittance so they can be here. And there's just not that much opportunity for professional advancement here. So uh, my brother-in-law actually had another project management company that had clients, Walmart, Lowe's, Safeway, and stuff like that. So I started working for him. Didn't have an adventure, but I was like, well, I'm just going to try this and see what happens. And I'm really good at project management. It just isn't my passion. Right. So I started doing that, did it for like two and a half years. And I I was kind of getting tired of it. I'd started managing vacation rentals on the side, like my mom's and my aunt and a couple other people. Just because I thought like, oh, that's kind of helping people have adventure and this is fun. And I have my property management license from getting it years ago when I tried residential management. So I can do this. And my brother-in-law came to me and he said, hey, I'm wanting to diversify a little bit. What should we do? And I said, well, actually, I've been looking for funding for this vacation rental company that was for sale in the area. And he said, great, I'll buy it. You run it. Let's just go for it. And it wasn't a partnership. He was just going to hire me as an employee. And so that's kind of really where my professional and passions kind of started. And I think I was 28 that year. So we got that. 
and that yeah, it blossomed. I, it was the first time in my life that I found something that actually helped people how to adventure that I could really sink my teeth into, be the leader at, um, lead other people, and kind of create an experience for my clients that people really wanted. Yeah, and 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 I think too, it's really it's such a common thing to what you said back there of it was something that it's not what I was passionate about, but project management was something I was good at, and I think yeah. so many people get stuck in that because it feels good to be good at something like it feels good oh, to know what great. you're doing and you're it like totally sucks to not be good at something yes it's the worst that that, that stretch i think that's why most people don't jump right it's because it's really hard to go from being you know third second even first in command at something you're good at but isn't your passion to yes. like working under somebody that's your passion and feeling stupid day in day out for years you know yeah well and that's it too is because you know, you can be passionate about something, but not good at it yet. And so it there is that like that jump where it's like, I was so good at this. I felt like I was at the top and now I'm, I'm loving it, but I'm also at the bottom and this sucks. And that, that can be a huge deterrent from, from doing the thing, but it's so that like viewpoint you have to take that long-term down the road, where do you want to be? And, and sometimes you have to be a novice at the beginning. You have to be okay learning again and and not really knowing what you're doing. So I think that that's, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. I think that's really, really important. No, I like you pointing that out. Because <laughs> if I've done anything in my career, it's make that decision over and over again, maybe to my detriment, but we'll find out when I'm 55 years old, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, let me know. <laughs> maybe to my detriment, I've jumped ship for something that I'm more excited about yeah. all the time. That's kind of my natural posture. I have to be held back. But I think that's really along the same lines of what you said in the beginning of excitement and excitement is like this universal language. Mm -hmm. It's like you're connecting through excitement. It's all just energy, like excitement is energy. And so if you're constantly following that energetic pulse to like, ah, this, this one feels right. And this one feels right. I mean, at the very least, you're going to have a life full of things that you desperately loved doing. And I I say that's a success. (laughs) Like, I mean, What more could you ask for? Well, and you know, it always feels like jumping ship. It always feels like jumping ship. I was senior project manager, you know, my my brother-in-law, the owner of the company, and then it was me, and then it was everybody else. So I jumped ship and I couldn't go back and be second command. But if I wanted a job at that same company today, because I did a good job, I could go get a job there. I know it. I know without a doubt. I'd pick up the phone, I'd be working there next week, and I'd be hating my life. But I know I could get a job there. So while it feels forward-looking, like if I do this, I'm never going to be able to get back here again. And if this fails, I'm screwed. That might be true in the short term, but there are a gazillion project management companies out there that that are hiring people every day, maybe not every day anymore, but they're hiring people without experience in project management, taking a guess on whether their personality traits would make it good. So when you've done something, you have that experience and you can always go back to it. Yeah, It's not going to be a smooth transition, but it's not as big of a cliff as it felt at the time. And it's never... In hindsight, it's never as big as big as a cliff as I think that I'm jumping off of. So the experience that you have as you get older, especially when you're your twenties, you're like, I'm never going to be able to get back to this. But if you actually do a good job at something, it's not that hard to go get that job back. It's not that hard. Yeah, you have that reassurance, that safety mat that you can crash back on. I think it's we do have that black or white mentality sometimes when we are going to leap. It's like I'm going to leap and I'm never going to come back. I'm never going to be able to. 
It's like, you'll, yeah, it's okay. You'll, <laughs> you, you have some yeah. experience. You have some legs to stand on. You'll find, you know, you'll, and then you can, you can land, crash, and then like bounce off to a different place. Like it's never an absolute. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's the easiest thing to go back to what it's, it doesn't feel emotionally good, but it's, it's much easier to go back. I, I have, um, you know, a standing offer to go be a property manager again. I have just a standing offer from somebody that used to work for me, has started her own thing. And anytime I want to, I can go back and partner with her. Not even just work for her, but partner with her. Right. So like, if you do a good job, it's, it's you know, if you're good at it, you, you can get back to it. So I guess jumping back into my journey, we we started on this property management company. It was just for vacation rentals. Started it, bought it with 30 vacation rentals and $300,000 a year in sales. And then took it over five years and grew it to 65 vacation rentals and $65 million of, of real estate managed and $1.6 million of sales every year. Wow. So yeah, it was really, for me, it was eye-opening. I never thought I could do anything that big. I never even imagined that I'd be in charge of something or running something complete. You know, we had 15 people working for us at the end. I didn't see myself as that, but it turned out that I uncovered, kind of like brushed away the dust and found out that I was a really good team leader and I was really good at marketing. Like I wasn't so good at like the accounting and all that, you know, I hired people to help all that. But those were things that I found just by taking on these larger responsibilities, but also by making sure that the ingredients of, 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 of this career had what the ingredients that I had in my life, that it needed that. And it needed to, um, to help people have an adventure, like not just the people are, that were our guests, but also my, my team members needed to feel like they were along for something bigger than themselves. And that kind of created like this magnetic environment in which opportunities just came to us. And we quickly became the largest vacation rental company, not just in our area, but in Montana, which again, isn't saying much, but it was still a big thing and found much more success. Uh, that's, that's awesome though. Yeah, it is yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. The, what I found is that when you pick the right opportunity that has, um, that really has the ingredients that you need, you, you end up with a little more wind in your sails. And if you have wind in your sails, you don't struggle as hard on the little day-to-day things that you feel like you have a little more momentum. Yeah. And it's like you said, you were, you, be, you became magnetic because you, you had all of the right ingredients. I think that that's like, it's the same thing as being uh, enthusiastic and excited about what you're doing. That is hugely, hugely magnetic. And so yeah. it, it makes sense, you know, it, it, that's the through line with you know, what you do and, and that's what you're doing. You're following that thread of of enthusiasm and excitement. Yeah. So that's where the magnetism comes from, which is so key. Yeah, it's great. Cause like, you know, then people want to partner with you because they can feel that. So like we ended up getting insane opportunities, you know, five, six million dollar houses would come under our management when nobody had been managing those, nobody had even been renting those types of houses up here because there's nobody to like take care of them because everybody was just doing it for a job. They weren't actually excited about the details of making the guest experience wonderful and making it wonderful for the owners. So yeah, that was really, really fun. And I loved it. And I had no intention of ever doing anything else in my life. The end. That's, that should be the story. That should be what you're interviewing <laughs> me about right now. Is, but... is Isaac, a very successful project or a very successful uh, property manager has this wonderful company and all these employees and makes a bazillion dollars a year. That should be yeah. the story. Um, but, you know, I, I was getting a little bit itchy. My brother-in-law was the sole owner, but you know we weren't coming to terms on on how to get me some ownership. There was no um, tension there as far as like I didn't like him and he didn't like me. 
But I also understood that because it was family, I didn't have the same bargaining chips that I would say if it was just somebody that I didn't know. Because like if it was somebody I didn't know and we were really not getting along, I'd be like, hey, I'm just going to leave and start my own thing. Here I am, my own thing right next door. Call my owners, be like, hey, I'm over here now. I've got my company. It really is like an acid test of who wants my services or his services. But that's not possible when you're in family. And it might not have been the right move to do, even if I wasn't family. So I was kind of looking for an exit. I didn't know this yet, but like in my heart, I was looking for an exit. I totally didn't know. I thought I was 100% satisfied and we would sort this out. And, you know, my team didn't know that I was looking for anything else and I wasn't. But what I'd started to do, um, this was kind of ahead of its time in smaller business at the time. It was like you would see influencers working with like Pepsi or, you know, you'd see influencers working with like Toyota, but you didn't see influencers working with just smaller companies. That was not a thing. Mm -hmm. So I had no social media of my own because I didn't like it. I'd had a Facebook, I'd had an Instagram, I deleted both. And I said, look, one of one of our team members was like, hey, we need to go on Instagram. And I was a marketer at heart. And I said, look, if we're going to do this, we can't just get in there and just like start posting like throwback Thursdays, like everybody's doing and have no impact. We've got to do this like yeah. huge. So I was looking for ways to do that. We were coming up with you know ways to get better content with no budget and all of the things that everybody faces when they're um, running a business and they're trying to figure out ways that they can grow grow their social media. And Instagram was relatively new. So I think this was 2015. So Instagram was relatively new. I think Instagram started in 2011. But the influencing part was definitely new for our area and for smaller businesses. And at the time, I got reached out to by now two really good friends of mine, Alex Stroll and Forrest Mankins. And they both, independently of, the, of each other, um, reached out and said, hey, I'm thinking of coming to the area to shoot some photos. I'd love to stay in a cabin. And I was like, that's it. That's the opportunity. I'm going to get these wow. guys to come up here. They're going to stay in these cabins. I'm going to give them these cabins for free for um, you know, several months, not just a couple of nights. And then I'm going to take them on these once in a lifetime unobtainable adventures, unless you're a local and give them the full locals experience. They're going to get better stories out of it. And everybody's going to want to come here. So we started doing that and taking these guys. And I was, I told my wife, like, look, I am going to learn a lot about marketing from these guys. I'm going to learn some photography so that I can shoot photos for the business, not thinking for myself at all at this point. And I could go take classes for marketing and this was my logic for my wife. I could go take classes for marketing and photography at the college from somebody who's not good enough. And this is rude. It's not true. But this was my logic to my wife. I said, if there's somebody who's not good enough to do this for a profession, so they have to teach it at the college and pay to do it, or I could just give these guys my time and do what I do, which is help people have adventure. And they're going to teach me all this stuff for free. And they're the top you know, social media performers in the world right now. Yeah. Well, that's that's huge. I think mentorship is a huge thing. You know, in the hero's journey, there's there's always like a, a mentor or someone that that comes in. Yeah, the guide. The guide. Yeah, and I think that that's that's so important. And and the way that we've been brought up or in our society is like you go to school to learn these things. But I, what you're saying has so much validity. That what about someone who's actually doing it in the real world because they're doing it now. They have like up to the minute advice and wisdom and experience around what's going on now. So there's, there's so much in that. Like, I think it's, I think it's important to, to, to connect to, or serendipitously, th these guys kind of landed uh, in your, in your lap, but. Yeah. And I think it was, it was serendipity, but I had a lot of my close friends and people that I worked with at the time tell me, this is not just serendipity. You've been doing this for five years, working as hard as you can. You've been doing a team and marketing. You've made an excellent product. 
people want to be a part of that. Like they didn't just yeah. reach out to Joe Schmo down the road and see if they could stay in his cabin. They reached out to you. And then because I knew that I had value that I could give them, every storyteller wants a story. Like they obviously need cash to live and eat, but these guys, I didn't pay them anything. I think we gave them overall while I was there, like $30,000 of stays, but that thing came out of our budget out of our company. And that's a lot, but nothing came out of our budget or our company. And these guys through their tags and their posts and their photos, they gave us about $160,000 worth of press. Wow. Yeah. So that was just for the company. But at the time, I knew that I would be able to learn and hang out with these guys. They were very interesting to me. The more I hung out with them, the more I wanted to hang out with them. But like, you know, they get approached by photographers all the time. They're like, hey, let's go shoot. And like the last thing a photographer needs is another photographer shooting the same image. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas I approached them and said, hey, do you guys want to go on this once in a lifetime adventure that you can't do unless, you know, you use my connections, the, you know, my gear, this, that, and the other. Like that wasn't what I said, but that was what I was insinuating is like, do you guys want to go do this story with me or not? And they're like, of course, we're going to go do that story. We need a story to tell. And that sounds very photogenic. Um, so that's how I was able to approach them. You know, plus then I gave them a place to stay. And I basically made sure that they had their needs met while they were here. And then, um, and again, I was not in any way wanting to be an influencer or a photographer. I had not shot a photo in years. I would use my can my phone camera and just be like, God, that looks like garbage. So I was just taking photos of my kids like everybody else, just yeah. not thinking that I was creative or artistic in that way at all. So many people feel that. I love, I, I keep like, I keep wanting to grab these like bits of wisdom because, and, and to highlight them because that's so many people don't believe that they're creative. So they never end up picking up the camera or the paintbrush or the whatever it is. It's along the same lines as not feeling like you're an adventurous one. So you never go and like get the hundred dollar, whatever, split board or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You never do it because you don't think that you are, but you can. Like, it's it's just like you said, it's the breadcrumbs um, leading up to it. Like you're, you're a, a brilliant photographer and you used to just be taking pictures with your phone of your kids. So, I mean, I just love that contrast. It was not art. The photos that I was taking was not art. <laughs> I had the only thing I had was the ability to tell that my photos were garbage. Like at least I had that amount of awareness. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think they were art because I could tell they were bad. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's what, but I, I wanted to learn it. And then, you know, Alex said, Hey, I've got this extra camera. Why don't you just play around with it for a while? And I think he was just being nice and just being like, these guys are really helping me out. I just, and so I started playing around with it and found out that I had a knack for composition. Like I just knew what looked good and what didn't. I didn't know how to operate the camera. If you go all the way back to the very first photo on my page, the very, very first photo, I literally shot that same photo probably 25 times, twisting the knobs on the camera to figure out till it looked okay. Right. I didn't even know how to set the ISO or the shutter speed or anything like that. Nothing. This mm -hmm. was like twisting, 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 look at it, twisting, look at it. And it was just a beautiful scene. And I knew how to kind of frame the camera where, but it's like, the more I did it, the more I was curious about it, the more, um, but I did have a little bit of a knack for it, you know, cause you've got to have a little bit of success. Like you've got to, to be a singer, you've got to actually have a decent voice. Otherwise practicing singing is always going to be like, kind yeah. of, you know, spinning your wheels. Talent. And, and it's like, you have to, there's that little bit of raw talent and then the education yeah. like can, <laughs> yeah. can do the rest. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you always have to, uh, some, a feedback loop that is like, I put work into it, it gets better, put work into it, it gets better, put work into mm -hmm. it, it gets better. Um, so I started doing that, still didn't have my own social media account. And 
you know, Alex and Forrest and all these other people that I was working with are like, why don't you have your own social media account? We want to tag you. We don't want to tag the business all the time. I was like, no, no, just tag the business. So finally, January 2016, they convinced me to start my own. And I started my own, started posting. And, and at the time, Instagram was um, in a very growth-oriented period. So whatever you put into it, you kind of got out of it. And what I mean by that is like, it wasn't even a strategy, but like I would go help Alex with this. He'd be like, hey, can you run up there? And he'd take a picture of me and then he'd tag me and then I'd get like 3,000 new followers the next day. And I was wow. like, whoa, this is crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there were there were days where I got 20,000 followers in one day. Holy smoke. I feel like those <laughs> days might be gone. I don't know. Well, they're definitely gone. Yeah, they're <laughs> definitely gone. Uh, because nobody needs anybody new to follow anymore. It's just not yeah. a thing that we need. We're not like, oh, I wish I had somebody new to follow. We're like, yeah, yeah I wish I spent less time. I gotta on my unfollow phone. these people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, that started happening a little bit, and then people would come up to me, you know, the, all these because it wasn't just Alex and Forrest. It was a ton of other influencers. We probably had fifteen, sixteen, I don't, maybe even up to twenty people come stay with us, and we kind of became known. And the goal for me at the time was to. Anytime somebody Googled the phrase Montana and vacation rentals, that the top three of results on any platform were us. And the name of the business was Montana's Best Vacation Rentals. So I just wanted to be not only the expert for vacation rentals, but if you were looking for a cool place to stay or a cool place to go in Montana, I wanted you to run across content that we had made because we knew how to make it better. Mm -hmm. A little side note, when we started in vacation rentals in Montana, not one vacation rental company or any posting on VRBO or Airbnb had professional photos, not one. And that's everything when it's virtual because <laughs> yeah. that's like, that's the thing Nobody that would sells ever it. rent a house without professional photos now. <laughs> just wouldn't, yeah, no, like, it's so true. Uh, these are garbage. So there was a lot of upside there. And that was kind of my full strategy was just to give people, because nobody Googles like vacation rentals and then goes, oh, let's go to Montana. They were always like, they, they Google the place and then the vacation rentals. So we just wanted to be the expert. Yeah. And so that was my whole strategy and it was working really well. We went from with the company, I think in three months, we got like 60,000 followers on our company Instagram. Holy smokes. Which is like, like for no budget, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, back then, especially because like back then nobody had any followers on Instagram. So we were doing that. And then these influencers would come to me and they'd say, um, hey, I just got this job with Amazon to promote their new Kindle. I need three locations between here and Jackson Hole. Can you help me out with that? And then um, actually, can you come on the, the shoot and produce? I've got somebody from Amazon coming and needs to look really professional. I'm like, yeah, let me take a little bit of time off work. I'm, by the way, I'm working 50, 55 hours a week at my regular job. So take time off from work. And then they'd be like, can we pay you? And I just said, no, don't worry about it. Like you guys have helped me a lot. And, and someday I'm just going to, you're going to get a text from me that says, hey, can you help me with something? And they're like, cool. And it wasn't like I was like godfathering them. I literally was just enjoying helping. I was like thrilled. Like I get to work with Amazon. Are you kidding me? Mm. Um, and that just kept happening. Little, 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 little jobs, you know, here and there, here and there. Um, all these people just kept saying like, hey, I'm doing this. I want to come stay in your cabin. Can we do this shoot? Can you help me with this campfire scene? Or can you help me with, uh, you know, horse riding? And I would connect them with branches and stuff like that. And then my friend Alex Stroll came to me and he said, hey, look, I, you know, I've been doing jobs and commercial jobs for a long time, but I've put in for these two one-year contracts with multiple films and all of these photos and blogs and all sorts of things with Canon cameras and with Land Rover. And I thought I was going to get one and I got both. And at this time, he has a full studio now, but at this time he said, like, I don't know how to do the logistics. You know how to do logistics. I need somebody to come craft these adventures just like you've been doing for us, but like mm -hmm. all over the world. And I was like, I don't think that's me. And like, I've got this career. And 
I don't want to do that. And he was like, <laughs> okay, it's the well, classic call it. to adventure because the, yeah. the hero always yeah. rejects the call the first time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to because, you know, I said, well, how long is that? And he's like, well, you know, I can pay you half of what you make now for the first year. But I think your photography is good enough that you can pick up some extra stuff. And I will also, whatever else comes in for me, if we get extra jobs, you're going to be, you know, the producer on that as well. He came up with this title for me, Chief of Adventure. And uh, what you, obviously, like, that was just made to butter me up, the title. <laughs> <laughs> I've had titles like that before. You're like, I know that. I know what this is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It means nothing except for it just makes me feel good. Yeah. So, yeah, so he was, uh, you know, persistent in that, as he is. He's a very persistent person. And my wife and I went and we talked about it. And we make these 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 goal lists every year. We have goals, but then we have our five year and like our lifetime goals. And at the time, none of them said, um, you know, own a huge house, save this much money, go on vacation here. They just all had like travel indicators of places we wanted to travel. And uh, we knew that our kids were young. We knew that we couldn't afford to travel, and definitely couldn't afford the time to travel. Mostly, um, so we just thought, well, this could be this could be the thing. It's very risky, and mm-hmm. my wife. She's very prescient and she understands me more than I think I understand myself. And she also is like full 100% behind me in everything, which is like, I'm so lucky to have it. But she, she said, so look, important. here's the deal. I know you and I know you often regret the way that life is gone. And what I'm worried about and the only thing I don't want to hear is you have something going really good here. And I don't want in a year from now for you to be like, dang it, I wish I had stayed with the company and be full of regret and and that spill over onto us. I don't want to hear you say I should have stayed with the vacation rental company and that you really made the poor decision. And if you can get over that, then I'm on board. And I said, okay. Uh, and I thought about it for a while and I came back and said, all right, so here's the thing. If this all goes wrong, I'll get a job at Home Depot stocking shelves at night and you will never hear me complain. And if that's the bottom, me stocking shelves at Home Depot at night, um, I know I'm not going to be there forever. I can always come back to some other vacation rental company or get a job or maybe start my own or something if I have to. But if that's the bottom and I don't complain, that's not much of a bottom like compared mm. to like all of this, you know, like I've since been to Africa and I've seen what the real bottom is. This is not very bottom. Yeah. Like this is very safe. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Because we fear, we I think in our minds, we create these fears that are just yes. massive. Like we ultimately, we're fearing death is what it all comes down to. But it is like, we're if, it's like, if I don't do this, my life will, ex- or if I do this and it doesn't work, my life will explode and I'll be whatever. And Tim Ferriss talks about this um, sometimes, like every once in a while, he'll live life as if everything has gone wrong and he'll yeah. eat like the the shittiest of food and the, you know, and just to remind himself that if everything does go wrong, actually it's not that bad. And our minds are just beautifully imaginative and we can craft (laughs) these stories, but yeah, it's, it's good to, I think, actually ask yourself, what would it actually look like? And would it be that bad? And would it be forever? No. Well, for me, I think it wasn't even, I didn't go to like death or like, this is, we're going to be poor and destitute. It was also the fact that like I had been and was tasting some success. I didn't want to be seen as like the idiot that threw that all the way. And then went after this stupid little Instagram thing. And then just like came back and was, you know, working at home Depot. And then when I really walked through that, I was like, was that, would that be horrible? Would people like, no, I still have all these skill sets. 
like how much better is the story of rather than he never took a chance, but he stayed with this good job to he took a chance, failed, and then came back and started his own vacation rental company even bigger than before. That's a way cooler story. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. that makes me want to partner with you even more because they, you know, and that's the thing I was really worried about is I had seen the power of partnership. And I was afraid that my, um, you know, we're so tribal. I was afraid that inside of the tribe that I knew that I would lose trust and that nobody would want to work with me anymore, whether it be partnering on a vacation rental company again, or whether it be just anything, because, you know, I didn't want to be seen as an imposter that took a chance on something that, that I thought was going to be awesome, but I have obviously no ability to judge what's going to be awesome. I didn't want to be seen as that, mm. but you know, yeah, what Tim Ferriss calls fear setting. I didn't know it at the time, but fear setting, I basically walked through the worst case scenario and keep in mind that my daughters were two and four years old and we were going to be traveling with them. Yeah. Ooh. I don't know what my wife was thinking. That's a rough <laughs> That's age. So much trust. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. But actually our daughters are always, they've always been really good at traveling and they've just been really easy. I don't know, just locked out. So um, yeah, so we started doing it. I resigned my job. It was really hard. You know, the crew was pretty, pretty bummed out. We found out that that company was going to sell, help facilitate this, the sale because basically there was nobody to, as much as I tried to fill my shoes there, there was nobody that could really fill my shoes. So help that company sell. But at the, the my first job before the company sold, um, I left. And the day that I left, like three days later, I was on a plane to Peru to do 20 day trek with Alex Stroll around this section of the Andes called the Huayawash. As you do? Like, yeah, over 150 <laughs> miles of hiking. And like, I've, I was instantly like, this is the best thing that's ever happened. You know, took photos. My own photography started to like, you know, obviously if you can go take photos that nobody's ever seen before, um, yeah. you're going to do pretty well on Instagram at that time. Um, so my own photography started to bloom. Um, that was my first ever job. And I was, I was able to get a sponsor, a gear sponsor and some financial sponsorship as well, which I was like, you know, mind expanding. I was like, what? You can get paid to do things that people pay to do? <laughs> what? Yeah. And I, it was also a lesson in that you just got to ask. You just have to ask. Yeah. I think so often we don't ask or or we put limitations on what what's possible. It's like there are some things that can happen that you have no idea that are so good that you don't even know are a thing. And just yeah. to open ourselves up to those kind of potentials and possibilities is so important. Yeah. Yeah. So I went and did that. But, you know, my actual role at this point was basically producer for Alex. Mm-hmm. I did that, ended up doing that for a year and a half. And then I kind of rolled into my own thing. And that was a rough transition with a lot of self-doubt, a lot of literally not saying it out loud because I promised I wouldn't, but thinking like, did I really mess this up? Did I just like walk away? I was going to ask when the self-doubt would, you know, if it, if it ever crept in, because I think that that like the imposter syndrome is. I don't, I don't know that it ever fully stops. Yeah. And I don't know that it ever fully stops. You know, when I hear it most is when like I haven't had a job for a while and like the reserves are getting slim and I'm like, uh, you know, but I mean, to be honest, I make more money now than I did when I worked for the vacation rental company. It's just that it's, it's always so unknown, right? Cause you're a freelancer, <laughs> which is crazy. But yeah, so I'd like started doing that, had so much to learn. So again, so you're talking about that jump. So I, Jumped into vacation rentals, did an awesome thing there, and then jumped into production, what I thought was production. And I remember people saying, so you're you're going away to be an Instagram photographer? And I was like, absolutely not. That is not what I am. That's not what I'm doing. I'm taking my skills as you know, somebody who can produce things, somebody who knows how to like run an entire company. And I'm 
I'm helping out these uh, photographers who make stuff for large companies. And then it rolled into, you know, me doing all sorts of things. And, and, you know, also here's the thing too, I'm seen as a photographer, like that's the front facing part of me, but a lot of what I have done has been being the face of companies as well, whether that be a model or whether that be like, I was the a TV host for a BMW project where they did this competition in Mongolia. Like I've done a lot of things that way, which have always kind of given me a sign like, oh, there's more people want me for more than just my photography. Mm. Um, it's mm-hmm. really been refining and even refining. I'm still refining that idea even till now. So yeah, then I started doing photography and always I was reaching, you know, at first, like there's like the, the main way that Instagram quote unquote photographers make money is through sponsored posts. So using their Instagram, like a magazine, like, you know, Sunset Magazine or or any magazine would sell advertisements. That's how most Instagram photographers make a living is they do sponsored posts. But I was always doing other things too. I was getting invited to like uh, for icebreaker clothing. I went to New Zealand twice and was their key model, which is like still nuts to me because I don't see myself as a model. <laughs> I guess they wanted somebody who looked <laughs> half worn out maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you uh, look exhausted. Come over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so did that. And then, like I said, the BMW thing. and then. Um, I would get opportunities to, you know, do commercial photography, which I was like, wow, I don't really feel like my photography is up to that level, but I would get these jobs to shoot photos, not for my own, you know, publication, but for their publication. And then I got jobs to direct films. And so two years ago, I guess, before I got the job to direct film, I kind of was doing photography and I was feeling like, okay, this is really dependent on good light. And in Montana in the winter, we usually, on average, have 10 days of sunshine between November and April, which is really tough for a photographer. <laughs> Mentally and stuff, you're like, where's the light? I'm just shooting grays and blues all winter long. You know, it becomes yeah. quite monotonous. And I thought, you know, it would be really fun to make movies because you don't, you can tell a story without needing that perfect light. And so I started very simply, but it was like, it was a jump. Like I was a professional photographer. I knew what I was doing. And instead of just doing that, I made the jump and I was like, I'm going to learn how to do video. It's an extremely frustrating process, especially when you teach yourself. But I started out just taking bites. So I took yeah. Instagram stories. I'd always said when Snapchat came out, I don't know if you remember when Snapchat came out, but you were only able to film inside of Snapchat. You couldn't upload onto it. I never used it. It was always perplexing to me. I just oh, it was, couldn't it's still perplexing it to me. It's still perplexing. But I remember yeah. doing this, doing these stories and people would really like them. And I would do this cheat where I would film a lot of things on airplane mode. And then I would come back, you know, like when we were in Peru and, and stuff, and I would come back and I would I would go through all of them before they posted and I would curate them. So I would get rid of the clips that didn't really enhance the story. And I said at the time, I said, look, whoever, because what had happened on Instagram is it was always like you had to shoot an app. And then when they opened it up to upload, the first people who started using DSLRs and shooting high quality photography and getting on there, it was like a land grab. People were like, oh, they'd never seen anything like it. This, the quality was like a huge jump. And I said, I'd missed that on Instagram. Like that had happened years before I actually got on it. And I said, whoever does this with Instagram stories, or sorry, this wasn't even Instagram stories, this is Snapchat. Whenever they start to let upload on Snapchat, whoever does that is going to like have this massive following. And if you do it on Snapchat now, like if you get a designated iPhone with a case and a tripod and a mic, and you like just get the iPhone to make it look as good as possible, you'll go huge. And there were people who did that. And I kept saying that. And then like, you know, it finally like Instagram stories came out. You could upload on that. And it was on Instagram and I already had a following. So, you know, 5,000 people were already seeing my stories. And I one day I realized, I was like, I keep saying this. Why, doesn't it, why isn't it me? Just because I don't know mm-hmm. how to do video? 
I thought all I need to do is 15 seconds of a video. I'll do it on my big camera. I'll shoot it. I'll edit it. I'll upload it. Just 15 seconds. That's all I got to commit to. One slide. Baby and then steps. because, yeah, because of that, it ended up being, you know, two minutes long. And I've built almost a hundred Instagram stories in, in, in this big Canon DSLR camera. Wow. And then edited them in on my computer, added music, added every, all these things, you know, they're sideways video, you know, vertical video mm-hmm. and uploaded those. And through that, I was able to learn without the commitment of a 10 minute uh, YouTube video of like 10 minutes of just garbage of me learning. I only had two minutes of garbage, you know, and <laughs> small bits of garbage. <laughs> yeah. And through that, I started to understand story, what caught people's attention, what they wanted to see, what they didn't, how to build that hero's journey or, or even just, you know, even more basic begin a beginning, a middle and an end, you know, what the real ingredients of a story are. And then through that, I was able to like raise my hand when they said, Hey, do you do video? And I was like, yeah, I do video. And did I make somebody video? And then did somebody be like, Hey, we saw you did video. Do you direct videos? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. Totally. <laughs> and so I ended up directing like a like a shoe commercial for ASIC shoes. Wow. You know, so like all these opportunities are coming along just by my my willingness to step out and be frustrated and and possibly have no success. Because what I was thinking with video is like it's going to suck. Nobody's going to like it. They're going to laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to hate it. Uh, and then I, fine, whatever. We'll move on to the next. Thing. Yeah. Well, you have to give it a shot. Like, what's the what's the worst, right? That can happen, you know. And yeah, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. I think you said somewhere, yeah. What you talk about, like being comfortable, is is such a problem because we we get way too comfortable with life. And I think it's in one of the videos you're in. It was you said something along the lines of, "I know that I'm kind of veering off track when I'm moving towards what's more comfortable as opposed to what's more of a challenge or more exciting." Yeah. Yeah, that for me is kind of personal guidance is like, if I'm feeling like, okay, we've got everything ordered, you know, think of it as like, uh, your office completely organized. You're like, why is my office organized? I should be like doing external work, right? <laughs> <laughs> like everything should look perfect in here. Then I've spent too much time organizing my office. I should be doing external yeah. work. That's how my life is. When things start to feel like I know what all the pieces are and I'm not really stretching or pushing. I know I'm not following the path that I need to try something new. And so I guess in my journey here, what I've come to find out through trying all of these things, you know, like video for me, again, I just held up the calendar and I said, is this going to help people on adventure? And I saw, you know, so many creators on YouTube that were doing a different version of, of what I did, but like Casey Neistat, for example, like made people really excited to do, to do what he did and really relatable. But there was nobody doing that for like adventure content. And don't think that I'm saying that I'm Casey Neistat because I'm certainly not. But I held it up and said, like, look, if I shared just my everyday adventures on video, is that more impactful? Does that help people more? Does that give them more than just one photo on Instagram that they see for three seconds, like, and then scroll past? And the answer was yes. And that was really why I did it. So I had the reason first. It wasn't like I was just curious about video and I didn't know what I was going to make. It was like, does this help people have adventure? I've always held that, like, if it helps people have adventure, does it help them be excited? Does it make me excited to see them excited? Can I build that feedback loop so I want to do it more and more and more? Mm. And the answer was yes. So I jumped in it. And, you know, like this year, I've made a concerted effort to go from doing um, these Instagram stories and transfer that into YouTube. So I've gone from the the two-minute mark videos to doing 10-minute videos. And I'm learning. And it's frustrating. And it's hard. And, like, there's no momentum there. You know, you get a video that gets you know, 10,000 views and you get one that gets 200 views. And like, 
it's all over again. I don't need this. Yeah. I don't know anybody who's in my situation who is doing this. But for me, it's like very exciting because when when it hits right and when I can share a perspective like like this video I made with the $100 motorcycle on the $200 split board and I get comments like, this is exactly what I needed. I'm going to go buy one right now and I'm going to get up there. That's like, that means that it's effective, that it really yeah. is doing, making the change I want. And it, um, you know, it's, I had a call. Uh, I do calls with with people, students who want to like interview me. That's not podcast interviews, but they, if anybody wants to interview me, I try and give back um, as far as students who are like doing projects and they, you know, they want to interview somebody who does what I do. And he was asking me about photography and I was kind of telling him similar to what we're talking about now. And he kind of paused for a second. He's like, wait, so you don't actually consider yourself a photographer? <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I'm a photographer. But he's like, he goes, it seems like you do a lot of video. And I said, I do a lot of video. I mostly just consider myself an adventure storyteller and I am medium mm-hmm. agnostic. The goal is to help people have an adventure. I don't care if it's with written word, you know, whether it's in person, whether it's with my photography or video, it doesn't matter. My goal is to uh, basically be the Anthony Bourdain of, of adventure content. It doesn't matter how I get there. What matters is that you're feeling the excitement that I get to feel. And it, it yeah. inspires you to go out and do your own thing. So that's kind of where I've ended up. Which I mean, and it always comes down to the root. It always comes down to the why, like your entire, like you just tied it up so perfectly and that's why I think it's so important to actually ask yourself, like to take the time, which it can seem frivolous, but to take the time and be like, what, why am I like, what would actually make me happy? Like, what do I actually want to do yeah. while I'm living and breathing on this earth? Because we, you know, we only have so much time. And I think right now people are really um, kind of reevaluating their lives and, and, a lot of people asking themselves that question, is this a job I actually want to go back to? Or was this the break that I so desperately needed um, to actually take the scary jump and do something completely different? And it's by, you know, seeing it done by people like you who are out there doing it that, yeah, it's, it's highly possible that you could have or it's possible that you could have a career as um, an adventure storyteller and that's what your life is and and you know it's it's possible so I think it's really important that that people hear that and see that especially now yeah I mean it's it's wild it, it really is when I look back on all the things I've got to do in the last five years it's just nuts I mean I don't feel like it's been me that made it happen but I do know that it is native to who I am as a person and that it's probably not native to everyone, mm-hmm. but that if you find the thing that you love to do, the ingredients, not the thing, like if you want to be a cook, maybe it's not a cooking show, but maybe it's you're, you're an author or whatever. But the thing is that you love the smile and satisfaction people get when they eat the food that you've designed, or you love the smile and satisfaction they get when they try the recipe and, and or you just love um, how people feel after you've shown them how to cook. It might be that. It might be distilling down into what you've always been good at since you were little, what you've always kind of gravitated towards. Like I've always, always, with that book, um, 48 Days of the Work You Love, one of the things that I realized is that I was always the one pushing my younger brother to like go do an adventure or asking my friends like, hey, let's go try this. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. Always coming up with these stupid ideas to go like climb a tree and build a tree for it where it's like totally impractical or... um I remember it's because there's a distinct memory. You know, the little red wagons. Yeah. 
um pulling their little red wagon around as a kid it's like cool but it's quite boring i always wanted to go really fast you know have somebody push me hold the handle up here and then like steer it like a car yeah i always wanted to do that but i knew that my little brother was going to get bored of pushing me instantly so i decided that the next best thing was to have him drive so i pushed him everywhere everywhere no questions asked I just pushed him everywhere because it was to me, it was just better to go do that than it was to not do it because I knew he wasn't going to want to push. So I never even like really, I don't even remember like asking him to push. It was just, I'm sure I did, but it was just the thing where I was like, want to do that. And I realized through that, that, oh yeah, well, so like I'm willing to take second seat just so that we can have an adventure. And so that's basically what I've always tried to do is take second seat and help people have an adventure. Like I don't yeah. really care as long as we can do it. As long as we can do it, I don't care where I'm sitting. And that, I think that's a big part of why so much you or whoever it is doing what they love, that, that the things come to you. That's the, it's because like, it's so clean and not clean, but clear. It's like, this is what I like. And I don't care how I'm doing it. As long as I'm doing it, whatever yeah. container it comes in, it doesn't matter. As long as it's like coming through me and I'm able to have that experience. That's really what matters. And that reminds me of when I was a kid, I took a, an old ironing board and I tried to make a go-kart out of it. And um, and like that, it was the same thing. It was like, I just wanted to go fast. And like, I didn't care. I was like <laughs> yeah. looking around the yard for things to, and to me, like that creative process and just, it, we never ended up with this uh, iron board uh, go-kart. It never worked, but the process itself was, of creation was fun. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah, so so I think I think that that is, and I, I want to check for time too. I feel like, holy smokes! Okay, I'm gonna yeah. <laughs> go into the wrap up. But your story is so incredible, and I, I have so many, um, so many things that that um, I wanted to ask you. But your your story, I'm pretty sure it just you answered them all. To close out before we go into the the rapid fire and the wrapping up of everything. Um, I would like to know, you like to live a life without limitations um, in the physical world. Like you like to be able to go wherever you want to go and um, to really push your boundaries. What would you say were the main or did you have any mental limitations as far as like in your life, like, you know, the self-doubt that pops up and just for someone who is at the precipice or knocking at the door of something new and about to take that, that leap and has like mental blocks around it. What would you say to someone who's in that position? So I think one of the questions that I always struggle with the the mental boundary for me is like, how, how are we going to pay for this? Like, who's going to pay for this? Why? And oftentimes um, my friends that are close to me, who we, we talk about this a lot is I have a tendency to reverse engineer why somebody would want to pay this. You know, why somebody would want to give me two motorcycles and let me ride them around, brand new motorcycles, let me ride them around for three months. Why? And then I, I'm like, well, maybe if I did this and this and this. And the real thing is, I just had to stop reverse engineering and just ask, because I don't know what their logic would be, but let's find out. Mm. And so to, to remove the limitations, you just ask and you say, like, here's my skill set. Here's what I can do. Maybe I can make a video. What do you guys, what do you guys need? And then it, it seems to happen. So if you're struggling with like, whether it be you want to live a life like mine or whether it be, you know, you want to uh, get into law school, but you don't have all the credentials. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of the author, Bob Goff. No. He's got this book called Love Does, and it's just fantastic. 
but he wanted to get into law school. But I, from what I remember, it's been a while since I read the book. He didn't have all the credentials or he was like too late or something like that. So he just went and sat in the hallway next to the office of the admissions officer for like two months until the guy finally just let him. In. He didn't reverse engineer. He didn't say, what does this guy need? He just went and asked and asked and asked and asked and asked. And there's something to be said for persistence. Like when I reach out to a company to work, for instance, I, I worked with a mountain bike company a couple of years ago. I reached out and had phone conversations and email conversations with 13 different mountain bike companies before one said yes. That's so important. When I do outreach to do sponsored jobs, I have about a 280 to one hit rate. So once I've distilled that down, I know like I've got to do this 280 times till I get a job. It's not personal. I'm going to get 280 no's. So the mental yeah. barrier is that nobody likes to be told no. And you start to kind of like reverse engineer, like how, if I was in their position, I would tell me no because of this and stop. Like that's for me. The lesson is just stop, just go ask, just go ask them and ask yeah. again. And if they say no, that's not, it's not you. It's the timing. It's just go ask again. Just go yeah. ask again. Just go ask. Don't again. take it personally. Just which, which can be tough to do. It kind of bruises the ego a bit to like be told no over and over again. But I think it's like not placing your value in whether or not that because you don't know why they're saying no. It could just be that like it's a bad day or like they have a full schedule or whatever. It, it, it could have nothing to do with with you. In every business, but especially in this business, the customer buys because they're ready to buy, not because you want them to. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Which is, so, yeah, it's, yeah, so it's like, important I, to know. Just ask. Yeah. So that's yeah. The, the mental block for me doing the life that I want to live always ends up being me analyzing why people are not going to fund my adventure. And when I stop analyzing that and I just do it, I just ask, like, it's like miracles happen. It's just, yes. all of a sudden I get these opportunities that like, people are saying yes to. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even think that was going to happen. You know? How did that even happen? Yeah. Well, yeah. and that is, I think when you decide, oh yeah, I'm just going to ask because this is what I want to do, the end, and I'll, it'll happen somehow. There's, there's a power in that, I think. That, yeah. And there's an energy that you emit when you do just ask and you're not thinking too hard about it. People can feel that. They can feel, it's like, oh, this person knows what's up. They're brave enough and committed enough to their own work that they're just going to ask outright and then they feed off of yeah. that. Another ingredient to that is the power of an invitation. So like if I ask you just to sponsor me and they go for what and you don't really have an answer, it's probably not going to work. There has to be some exchange of value. I don't want you to reverse engineer it, but we're all very tribal minded. And what that means is that if you get invited to go be part of a tribe or part of an, an event, it feels like there's an opportunity that you don't want to say no to. And so the way that I craft my thing, my proposals, I should say, is I often say, um, like, hey, I'm going to go do this adventure. I would love for your company to be part of it. This is what that adventure mm -hmm. looks like. So I build something to, to invite them to. You know, I've always said that the kid in high school that had the girlfriend that you always wanted to have, he was never better looking than you. He probably wasn't more athletic, but his dad had a boat. And so he could invite <laughs> this girl out on a boat in the summer <laughs> and just by proximity end up dating this girl. because. He had more of her time because he, he had something to invite her to. Whereas like me, I was just like, hey, you want to like talk on the phone? Like I had nothing, you know, but the, the boat, the boat was the thing. And you just got to figure out what the boat is and you can make it up. It doesn't, there is no um, limitations on what you can invite people to do. It should just be true to what, what you are, you know? Hmm. Perfect. Okay. I'm going to leave it at that because honestly, this could go on forever. 
Um, <laughs> so I'm going to go into some rapid fire uh, and then we'll close it out. And yeah, no pressure on like, you don't have to answer these super rapidly if you don't want to. Um, but yeah, are you ready to, ready to go? I'm ready for it. Yeah. Okay. So how do you start your day usually? Uh, so I get up, either my wife and I make coffee. We have like this really, it says a universal meat grinder. It's like this coffee thing that you got to like force. You put the coffee beans oh, in there. Oh, with the ha- like yeah. the spinning handle? Yeah, but this one's like, it literally is like a universal meat grinder. It just happens to work perfect for coffee. It's like mounted to the counter. <laughs> oh, oh and so okay. we grind it, make pressed coffee, and then we both go sit. Um, we live on the river in this old mid-century modern. It's got floor-to-ceiling windows. And we just go sit there and we look out at the river and drink coffee. And I usually don't move from there for about an hour. I'm just mm. chilling before I do anything. A slow morning. My girls usually come out, wake up, say good morning, sit with me for a little bit. And I just drink coffee and hang out. So that's that's how the morning starts. I think I think that's so beautiful. So many people, it's like you wake up and you're just chomping at the bit. You get out the door. You don't even have time to think about anything. But that's such an awesome way to start your day. Um, we're stuck now where we are, but next, if like when the time comes where where you can travel, what's the first place on your list you would go? Um, I mean, right now I'm like really chomping at the bit to do some bigger backcountry ski trips. Even though you know winter's over for most people, in my mind, the backcountry is just getting safe because the snow is solidifying. So I've got all these like backcountry ski trips to do. But as far as a big trip, um. I was hoping before this all started to go to Svalbard, which is uh, the farthest north full-time inhabited island in the world. Oh, wow. Um, it's north of Norway. Um, so I had I had plans to go there with a friend of mine from Norway and a friend of mine from Wales, and we canceled those. So that one might come alive again. But the other big trip that I really want to do is um, another, my friend Alex Stroll and I are hoping to do a, a gravel bike road trip, like so ride gravel bikes from here all the way down past Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is in a car is seven hours, but it's, I don't even know how many miles. So I spent about two weeks riding bikes down that way. So that would be, that's the one I really want to happen, but we'll see. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, that's, you you can do that. You don't need to like go anywhere for like fly anywhere for that. True. But it's very hard. There's this global morality right now of just 100% staying at home because in New York, you got 100% stay home, but in Montana, there's nobody out there. So it's not important to like, stay stay home it's just important to but the internet doesn't see it that way so it's hard to get a sponsor to go do that thing so we yeah. don't want to be seen as like just assholes who get to do whatever we want when everybody else is stuck inside their 200 square foot apartment in new york city so we're very aware of that i live close to some trails and sometimes i go for a walk well every day i try to go for a walk into the trail and i always feel a little bit of guilt as i'm like walking through the the nature that for you know the people who are in the city stuck in their apartment and like they're they really you know or like they're in a hard hit area and they actually cannot leave their home unless they're getting groceries there is that yeah so i think this is in a sense kind of bringing us together as a global community just the fact that there is that kind of awareness around i'm not going to go on some crazy adventure right now and show off the fact that like i can do this and not everybody can so that's cool yeah um what is your most favorite place you've ever been? Um, I don't know if there is a most favorite, but I will just say that the American West is certainly underrated. It's just, there's so many places I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to explore it since, gosh, I mean, 
since I was as young. I mean, I started here in the American West and I've explored all over. But there are two places that really I'm always like, oh, I'd, I'd go back there in a heartbeat. And one of them was New Zealand is just mm. incredible. Not even like the hit lists of what everybody's seen, but just the entire island and culture and kind of the get or done spirit there. Like they're, you know, way out in the middle of the Pacific and they just kind of make their own way. So I really like that. I love the people there. But anywhere around Moab, Utah is super special to me. Not Moab itself because of the crowds there that are now there, but just any of the back kind of channels there. It's just, I don't know something about that red rock and the canyons and the ability to like go around a corner and explore a new area that you've never even seen before. And it looks totally different. You can't even see it in a plane. Like you have to really be down in there. I, I've been going to Moab nearly every year for nine years. And I always find something new that I've never seen before. Hmm. That's awesome. I've been getting a call to go to the Red Rocks. So maybe that'll be my first place uh, oh, it's, after it's, this. It's definitely recommended. Yeah. What is uh, the biggest lesson you've recently learned? Hmm. So again, my friend Alex Troll and I, we talk all the time about just really the theology of what we create and where we create it. And one of the challenges we've just recently talked about is like, what if Instagram didn't exist? Would you still do what you do? Mm. And for me, it really has clarified, like I said before, that I'm medium agnostic. That for me, I don't want to run out and take a photo every moment of every day, but I want to tell a story every moment of every day. Yeah, I really just want to, I want to tell a story and that it doesn't matter the medium and that if I wasn't paid to do this, that if I worked in an office as an accountant, I'd still want to somehow with a written word, photo or video, I'd want to tell a story. And that that's the thing I should be focusing on and not making the best potential or best possible photo about nothing. You know, whether it be like a commercial shoot or whatever, that's good. That's good to know. But what I should really be focusing on is story. So I've really, I've learned that lesson over and over again, but I've it's really just been kind of driven home and refined in the last couple of weeks. Dialed in a bit deeper. Yeah. Uh, what are some books or a book that you've read recently that you think other people would really enjoy or benefit from reading? You don't even have to have read it recently, just one that you really like and found beneficial. So, I mean, I've mentioned 48 Days to the Work You Love. That's very pertinent to the conversation we're having now. Um, that's by Dan Miller. But as far as what I'm reading right now, it's kind of, uh, I just love big, epic adventure books. So there's one I've just read now, and there's three that I recommend all the time. Um, the one I'm reading now is called The Boys in the Boat, and it's about these the Washington rowing crew. I know nothing about rowing. Um, it's like, you know, the crew, you know, I, I guess what they call it. Most people know what that is. I don't really know anything about that. It's not my my genre, but it's about their epic quest to win gold at the Berlin Olympics, Nazi Germany's 1936 Berlin Olympics. Wow. And it's this overarching story of a hero's journey but it's real life that's just so engaging and it also is really pertinent because it talks about the great depression and it's got some really uh it's really kind of neat to kind of match it up with what we're experiencing now and then realize like oh man we've got it so good so it really it's kind of like we do the benefit of this book is the germ of gratitude that it's given to me but it's also a great epic and the other one, I'll just say one more instead of two more. The other one that I recommend that's a very similar kind of vein, but even more epic is um, Shackleton's Journey. And it's about the Antarctic expedition of I think 1910, I want to say. Um, it's the, Both those books are just huge triumphs of the human spirit. 
and they're super, super entertaining. Like you wouldn't think they would be that entertaining, like survival books and books about rowing crew for the Olympics. Sounds kind of boring at first, <laughs> but they're really well done and you feel the emotion. You get like this emotion and you feel emotional about the triumph of the human spirit. So those are two that I just love. Hmm. Yeah. The triumph of the human spirit. That's like a universal, that's a universal thing. It doesn't matter what container you put it in. It's always going to yeah. be inspiring, right? Yeah. Uh, final two questions. And this is like, everyone asks this question, but I don't care because it's really my favorite question ever. Um, if you were sitting across the table from your 20 year old self and you could tell them or tell him one thing, what would you say? 20 year old self. I would probably say the frustration you feel about not being able to have the kind of adventures you want is justified and don't settle. Just don't settle like everybody thinks you should or like you think you should, but can't. Because I really couldn't. I tried, but I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just keep doing your adventures because that's where the life is and the life is magnetic and the opportunities come after that. Mm. That's like the perfect wrapping for like this entire <laughs> conversation. Uh, final question, what is your rebel cause? Meaning, why do you do what you do? And you you kind of spoke about I this throughout like the entire so conversation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's always about helping people have an adventure, always. Mm-hmm. And again, the reason that I love that is because when people are having an adventure, the ups and the downs of a real adventure, they're generally feeling some sort of excitement. It could be excitement to like get the hell out of there. It could be excitement because this is the best thing they've ever experienced. But they're the most real and genuine. It's super hard to fake excitement. And it's super hard to fake who you are in that moment of excitement. And I love to be around that. I think uh, that brings me back to like when you were a kid, you hung out with other kids. There was no filter. But when you get to be an adult, there's a filter. And so my rebel cause would be uh, to help people have an adventure. Perfect. That's wonderful. We're going to leave it at that and call it a day. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's me. Thanks so much for tuning in to the end of this episode. And as I mentioned in the beginning, anything that we talked about, including links to Isaac's website and Instagram, all that good stuff can be found over at Real Rebel Podcast in the show notes. And if you like this episode, you might also enjoy the audio coffee one that comes out every single Monday. And essentially, it's designed to be like coffee for your ears and meant to just help you get your week started off on the right foot. Music for the intro on this episode is a custom track done by my guy Nathan from Extra Deluxe. And music played throughout the outro is called Deep Blue by Dusty Marshall, both of which you can find links to in the show notes. Okay, until next time.